imagine it's the 28th of November and you're sitting outside southwest of Cork lying in the cold wet long grass you've been there since about half eight that morning and you've been lying in wait for about eight hours you've walked all night you're cold you're hungry and you're sitting there waiting for something that might not even happen the reason why you're there is because you're an IRA volunteer in a flying column and you're waiting on your enemy a patrol of two lorry loads full of the auxiliary division of the Royal Irish Constabulary or Ogsies. You're waiting on this enemy and this enemy is better trained than you, is better armed than you, has more combat experience than you, is better supplied and would be considered conventionally a better soldier than you. You were lying there after marching all night in the freezing, cold, wet, wintry afternoon and within a few minutes of their arrival on the scene your whole world is going to change irrevocably. Once they appear on the scene after a short, sharp firefight 19 men will lay dead on the road in front of you. 16 of those dead will be the enemy and 3 of those men will be your allies in the IRA. If you haven't guessed what I'm talking about today we're going to be talking about the Kilmichael ambush in the Anglo-Irish War or the Irish War of Independence on the 28th of November 1920. What set the Kilmichael ambush apart from the previous IRA operations at that time was the scale, the intensity, the losses and the result of the engagement. It was quite a major step up from the previous assassinations the IRA usually performed on individuals or small numbers of the Crown forces. Even the British cabinet acknowledged the ambush as a military action that was of different character from the preceding operations. Kilmichael ambush represented a major change in focus and an increased ambition about what the IRA felt it could achieve. And this change depended on the local commanders. Rather than having a centralised command structure, the local commanders had a large amount of autonomy to be able to set targets and to strike at targets depending on their men and material available to them at that certain time. And Kilmichael is such an integral part of the popular culture or any any conversation about the Irish War of Independence has to include Kilmichael. It's, it's so popular because it's such a big blow to the British forces and it's such a major win for the IRA during this conflict. There's songs about it, stories. The leader of the flying column, Tom Barry, has been hailed as a hero. It's even in that uh, great film, The Wind That Shakes the Barley, where the action is played out more or less along the lines of Tom Barry's account of it in his book, Guerrilla Days in Ireland. Peter Hart, in his book, The IRA and Its Enemies, says this about Tom Barry and Kilmichael. Quote, In West Cork and in Ireland as a whole, Kilmichael became the most celebrated victory of the rebel arms, the archetypal ambush. Tom Barry, the column commander, became a folk hero and a revolutionary celebrity. End quote. But what's really interesting about Kilmichael is not just its military significance, but rather the dark, sinister controversy that has surrounded the ambush for nearly a hundred years. The ambush, like I said, resulted in the total destruction of the auxiliary patrol, something that had never been done beforehand. Out of the 18 auxiliary cadets, 16 lay dead immediately in the aftermath of the ambush. One guy was left for dead, he was paralysed, uh, was picked up the next day and never recovered from his wounds. And the last cadet, Cecil Guthrie, managed to escape from the scene and was later shot by the IRA. But the controversy arises 
around how the auxiliary patrol met its end. How were these guys killed? Was the auxiliary patrol defeated by conventional military tactics? By Tom Barry's flying column? Or were they annihilated as some part of a bloody-minded mission under Tom Barry's guise? Did the auxiliaries and wounded men, did they surrender and were they just executed afterwards? Or were they even given a chance to surrender? Or is Tom Barry's account of a false surrender that resulted in the death of IRA men the true story and what actually did happen? All these questions are really important to finally understand and shine some light on what actually happened in Kilmichael. The records are very fragmented, they're very contradictory of one another. Some say there was a false surrender, some don't say it, some say there was but then they omit it. It's very difficult to understand what actually happened at Kilmichael. So what I'd like to do today is take a more forensic look at what happened and be able to offer up both sides arguments and let you decide what you actually think happened at the Battle of Kilmichael. 28th of November 1920. So what was the prevailing political and military climate in particular? What led to the deployment of the Auxiliary Division of the Royal Irish Constabulary by the British government to Ireland and in particular West Cork? The situation in parts of Ireland between 1919 and 1921 have been categorised as being in a state of undeclared war. By November 1920 though, the IRA were particularly active in West Cork, more so than any other part of the country. And in West Cork, the engagements were becoming increasingly destructive and more vicious. Peter Hart describes West Cork in the Irish War of Independence as the Gaza Strip of the Anglo-Irish War. Hart isn't alone in that description of Ireland as the Gaza Strip. The historian Jared Murphy actually agrees with him as well. The conflict was moving from sporadic clandestine attacks on individual people and property to a situation where the IRA operations were becoming more organised and on a larger scale. They were presenting a much greater challenge to the Crown's authority. Ore Beaumont, in his book Military Elite Forces, describes the character of the Irish War of Independence as, quote, the prototype of modern irregular war, end quote. It wasn't just on the battlefield that the Crown's authorities were being challenged. The Crown's civil administration was being usurped by Republic efforts to replace key institutions. The IRA were setting up courts, they were policing areas. The IRA represented a direct threat to the rule of law. The threat that could not be contained or challenged by just a normal police force. And for various political reasons, there was no desire for the British to acknowledge the scale of the rebellion by handing over control to the military authorities. Britain had just gone through the First World War, they'd lost millions of men, they'd still imperial policing all over the British Empire. They did not want another war right on their doorstep. The British people were sick, so they needed to come up with a different idea. The military historian Jeremy Black describes the authorities' response as the following, quote, Although the governmental response is presented as policing, it can entail a level of military commitment that deserves the description war, End quote. In order to maintain this policy of police primacy, a decision was made by British authorities to augment the existing police service, the RIC, with two different types of constabulary forces. The first ones were temporary constables, more commonly known as the Black and Tans. The second ones were called temporary cadets. These guys are called the auxiliaries. The auxiliary division of the RIC had been formed in July 1920 and was comprised almost exclusively of ex-officers of the British Armed Forces. They were employed as temporary cadets on six-month contracts with an option of another six. At one pound a day, these guys could make a substantial amount of money over a short period of time. And given the economic situation of post-war Britain, this was a very attractive option to very many people. But 
by recruiting ex-members of the British Army. The RIC had effectively been issued with a military capability and the RIC, in the absence of a declaration of war, was now essentially on a war footing. The role of the Auxiliary Division, rather than policing, more so fit the role of counterinsurgency group as hired mercenaries. The momentum began to swing to the Republican side as the Crown struggled to maintain law and order. Morale in the RIC was plummeting, as were recruitment numbers. And this is because both socially and professionally, the RIC were in the firing line as such. As a force, the RIC was becoming more and more isolated and vulnerable. And it's for this reason that the Black and Tans and the Auxiliaries had to be brought in to bolster their numbers. The Auxiliaries arrived in a town of Macroom in West Cork in early September 1920. And according to Peter Hart, they, quote, arrived in a Cork district whose police chief declared it to be practically in a state of war. Only in May 1920 did the British attempt to restore order and found itself embroiled in a vicious little war in the hill country west of the town with the Ballyvorney IRA. The British had lost three men, including two officers and six wounded. The IRA had lost just one. The McCroom detachment simply stopped patrolling the western portion of their battalion area. When the new force of auxiliary cadets arrived, the RIC garrison had ceased to function and control of the countryside had been ceded to the rebels. End quote. Like everything in history, there are two sides to every story. In Ireland, generally the consensus of the Black and Tans and the Auxiliaries were that they were murderous brutes who terrorised the locale in which they were based. Certainly Tom Barry paints a very dark picture of the actions of the Auxiliaries after their arrival in Macroom just before the Kilmichael ambush. Quote, it seems to me that they were working on a plan to eliminate the IRA resistance by terrorism. They had a special technique. Fast lorries of them would come roaring into a village. The occupants would jump out, firing shots and ordering all of the inhabitants out of doors. No exceptions were made for men or women, the old and young, the sick and decrepit were all lined up against walls with their hands up and they were questioned and searched. For hours they would hold the little community prisoners and on more than one occasion in different villages they stripped all the men folk naked in the presence of people of both sexes and beat them mercilessly with belts and rifles. End quote. Tom Barry goes on to describe the auxiliaries killing local people as if for sport and concluded that the auxiliary force had been allowed to bluster through the country for four or five months killing, beating, terrorising and burning factories and homes. And it wasn't just Tom Barry who believed this because he was in the situation. The great Irish historian Mita Ryan confirms Tom Barry's account of the auxiliary division intimidating the locals, pulling people out of their houses at all hours of night, breaking furniture, wrecking homes and generally just bringing misery to the locale. Historian Peter Hart paints a different picture of the auxiliaries. He says that the commanders of the auxiliaries based at McCroom were, quote, responsible men who kept their cadets under control and prevented serious mischief or drinking, end quote. Even though Hart paints this picture of the auxiliaries, Brigadier General F.P. Crozier, the commandant of the auxiliary division, did state in his memoirs that C Company, based in McCroom, were one of the few companies who, in air quotes, drank modestly. But Hart argues that they were not all monsters, and even the IRA agreed with him on that. Hart quotes Liam Deasy, the adjutant of the West Cork Brigade of the IRA, remembering one particular auxiliary cadet for his quote-unquote soldierly humanity. One thing that is for certain is that the auxiliary division would take pot shots at civilians in fields or in streets as they drove along. I mean, most people in Ireland have a story from their granny or their granddad about being a child as the black and tans rolled into town. Actually, just yesterday, my neighbour was telling me a story about his mother who, in Sligo, uh, was hidden underneath a counter when the black and tans rolled into this shop. As with everything, there are two sides to every story. And I'll give you the example of the death of James Lahan and Bally McKeera 
by a McCroom-based auxiliary. And I'll take it from both sides. The first side is from an account of another auxiliary cadet called Bill Munro. And Munro was based in McCroom at the same time. And according to Munro, this is what happened. Quote, It was during a raid on some cottages up towards the Kerry border that we apparently surprised a meeting of some sort. It was just young fellows who'd taken fright on seeing us and ran for it. They were some little way off before being spotted and they were called upon to halt. But they kept going and some shots were fired. One was hit and fell. Upon reaching him, we found him to be badly wounded. So, taking him into one of the cottages, we did what we could for him and sent somebody to get a doctor and a priest, both of whom arrived in time to do what they could before the young man died. Monroe continued, this incident depressed us, especially as it was a stupid and unnecessary death. End quote. The historian Patrick Tuhig's version of Lahan's death is quite different. Not in the context of a random raid on some cottages, but rather in the context of a major raid on the village of Ballymakira by the auxiliaries, where practically every house and business in the village was raided. Tuhig describes James Lahan as a quote, middle-aged easygoing man who was big and harmless, someone who wouldn't harm a fly, end quote. It was because of this softness or this gentle way of Lahan's that it, quote, kept him from taking an active part in the events of the time, end quote. Tuhig's version of the events are as follows, quote, on the night of the raid, Lahan happened to be in his house on the east end of the village when an auxiliary cadet walked in. When questioned, he gave his name as James Lahan. The name must have meant something to the cadet, who was obviously worse for drink. He ordered Lahan out of the house and directed him down a small road where, about 50 yards from the village cross, the auxiliary emptied his revolver into him. Other auxiliaries rented a spot, but immediately the whistle blew for the all aboard order and they made for their lorries on the double. Some of the villagers went down the little boherine after and found Lahan slumped against the fence with his feet towards the road. End quote. So, two sides of a very different story. But what is clear though, is that by the end of the event, a man lay dead at the hands of an auxiliary. Munro doesn't mention any inquiry into the death, or if any auxiliary was held accountable for it. And Mita Ryan actually states that that cadet was named Cecil Guthrie, and Cecil Guthrie would find himself at Kilmichael a few weeks later. And so this is the problem that plagues Kilmichael and indeed history, figuring out which side is the correct side. And for Kilmichael, there are two major conflicting narratives. The two sides of this argument are the traditional view by Tom Barry, backed by Mita Ryan and John Murphy. And then there's the revisionist view, which is mostly led by the British historian Peter Hart. And discussions about Kilmichael have amounted to an academic shouting match almost where a view is offered and countered and returned and both sides basically trying to parry and argue with each other to show which side is correct and which side's version of the events are the actual true events and anybody with a different viewpoint coming in you know is probably going to get a bit of a harsh response if they don't slip into one of the two categories so let's take a look at the traditionalist view first this is the viewpoint as narrated by Tom Barry, the leader of the IRA flying column at Kilmichael in his book, Guerrilla Days in Ireland. Barry's version is that a patrol of 18 auxiliaries in two trucks were ambushed by a party of the IRA containing roughly 36 members. The auxiliary patrol is duped into slowing down, is engaged and defeated by conventional methods in a relatively short but brutal exchange. At one point, some of the auxiliaries dropped their rifles, pretended to surrender, and then drew their revolvers and shot three IRA volunteers, two of which died immediately and one will die later on that night. This is known as the false surrender. In doing so, they sealed their fate and no mercy or quarter was given to them and Barry gave the order to kill them all. 16 auxiliaries died, one was left for dead uh, was paralyzed and never recovered from his wounds and one auxiliary cadet who turned out to be Cecil Guthrie the 
supposed killer of James Lahan. He managed to escape the ambush and got free of the area, but he was later on that day captured and killed by the IRA when he knocked on the door looking for assistance at the worst house possible when he was trying to get back to his headquarters in Macroom. Tom Barry's recollection of the events at Kilmichael, and in particular the false surrender, is backed up by many historians. For example, John McCann in his book War by the Irish has this to say about the false surrender. Quote, for a time the Ogdes made a fight of it, but called upon to surrender, they signalled their intention in doing so. Barry gave the ceasefire order. As he did, his men rose to take the prisoners. As the IRA advanced, the auxiliaries again opened fire. They killed Michael McCarthy of Dunmanway and Jim O'Sullivan of Clonakilty, while a heroic youth, Pat Deasy of Kilmacksimon Cove, subsequently died of his wounds. The volunteers resumed the attack and when they left Kilmichael, 17 auxiliaries lay dead on the roadside, end quote. Now McCann doesn't actually disclose which IRA members gave him this account, but it is assumed that he spoke with individuals who were known to be involved in the ambush. There's another earlier account from another, air quotes, eyewitness, who does not disclose any names or personal information. This appeared in the 1941 Irish Defence Forces magazine on Cossantour. Quote, they were surprised to hear the auxiliaries chant, We surrender, as they grounded their rifles. Quickly, four volunteers from number two section stood up to take the surrender, but quickly the auxiliaries opened fire on them with revolvers, mortally wounding Lieutenant Pat Deasy and killing outright Jim O'Sullivan. End quote. Now it turned out that this eyewitness was actually Tom Barry himself writing under a pseudonym. So Tom Barry is really adamant about pressing home this idea that the false surrender actually did take place. Paddy O'Brien, who was one of the IRA volunteers present at Kilmichael, gave this account. Quote, Meanwhile, the second tender, the second lorry or truck, was about 150 yards behind and had become stuck at the side of the road where the driver had tried unsuccessfully to turn it. The auxiliaries had jumped out, threw themselves on the road and were firing from the cover of the tender. We opened fire from the rear and when they realised that they were caught between two fires, they knew they were doomed. It had been a short but grim fight. End quote. But Barry was disgusted at O'Brien's account in Liam DC's book Towards Ireland Free, purely because it didn't mention the false surrender. And so Barry retorted with this quote, I have no alternative but to tear asunder DC's published account of the fight itself and the fight where no false surrender by the auxiliaries occurred, after which two IRA men were killed, thus depicting me as a bloody-minded commander who exterminated the auxiliaries without reason." End quote. The great Irish historian Meade Ryan, whose uncle Pat O'Donovan was actually at Kilmichael as well, drew her weight in and supports Tom Barry's account of the ambush. Tom Barry's account of what happened at Kilmichael is the most traditional and the most well-supported and well-known account in general Irish culture. This traditionalist view has begun to be challenged really only in the last 20 years and this challenge has been led mostly by Peter Hart in his book The IRA and Its Enemies but Hart's stance has also been backed up by the Irish professor German Ferreter. Hart suggests that Barry's account over the years had changed in the telling and that what actually transpired was possibly far less dramatic, less glorified and definitely a lot more controversial. Hart has questioned in no uncertain terms the credibility of what Barry described. In Hart's opinion, quote, Helpless wounded men and prisoners were killed after the battle was over. Barry's history of Kilmichael, on the other hand, is riddled with lies and evasions. There was no false surrender as he described it. The surviving auxiliaries were simply exterminated. End quote. And like I said, Professor Jermit Ferder, when describing the Kilmichael ambush refers to it as a, quote, cowardly massacre which involved the deliberate killing of already surrendered soldiers, end quote. Ewan Butler gives an account of what happened at Kilmichael, and while his story differs very little from Tom Barry, he has an interesting little detail that lends a lot more credibility to Hart's argument rather than to Tom Barry. What Butler's account gives is 
Tom Barry's, let's say, his pre-battle pep talk to the column before the ambush commenced. It goes as follows, quote, There would be, he said, no withdrawal. The column would stand and fight until either it or the enemy were destroyed. The action which they were about to fight, he explained, was vital to West Cork and to all Ireland. The Oxys would not take prisoners and neither would the IRA. See to it, Barry concluded, that these terrorists are killed and are broken. End quote. One of the main pillars of Hart's challenge to Barry's account is the report allegedly sent by Barry to his superiors in the immediate aftermath of the ambush, which undermines his subsequent description of events. In this report, there's no mention of a false surrender. Barry accounts for the death of the three IRA men because they were, quote, too anxious to get into close quarters with the enemy, end quote and a whole host of different things that do not match up with Barry's later accounts of what actually happened at Kilmichael. Historians Ryan and Murphy have taken exception to the authenticity of this report, questioning the language used in it is not Barry's, and saying that there's a whole host of different information in it that Barry wouldn't have known at the time of writing, and that claiming that this was a forgery concocted by the Crown authorities. Ryan and Murphy argued the authenticity of this document because apparently it was intercepted by the British Army and now resides in the 6th Division's history of the conflict between 1916 and 1921. The 6th Division was the British military formation responsible for the southern part of Ireland during the war. So they really don't believe that Tom Barry A. typed this up and B. that it was intercepted by the British Army. Hart's public challenge to Barry's description of the ambush are in no way isolated or unique. The Irish Bureau of Military History began gathering statements from as many people as possible that were involved in the revolutionary period, and especially those who were at Kilmichael. And what is apparent from the statements in the Bureau's records are that there are some major conflicting answers to some of the most basic and simple questions about what happened at Kilmichael that day. For example, there are differences in how the ambush actually began, how the action unfolded, how many IRA members there were, where they were located and how many different sections there were, the type of arms and ammunition that the IRA had, as well as the number of guns and bullets that they took off the auxiliary patrol. But, perhaps most importantly, there are some major discrepancies about how the members of the auxiliary patrol were killed. Was it the false surrender, like Tom Barry said, or was it something a lot more sinister? Or was it something in between? And that's going to be a major part of our discussion today. Okay, so let's have a look at who the Auxiliary Division of the RIC really were. Let's have a more in-depth look at these guys and see if they really were the elite soldiers that they were made out to be. The Yogis were ex-British Army officers who were drawn from the ranks of demobilised soldiers post-World War I. They were assigned to a paramilitary role and had a quasi-police function and they were sent to areas around Ireland where the IRA were most active. The Oxys were considered to be well equipped, well paid and very well trained. They were almost elite forces at that time. They presented a numerical adversary for the numerically superior but otherwise military inferior IRA. Sean Edmonds describes the auxiliaries as, quote, ex-officers of the British Army, battle-hardened and tough, whose records show them to be fearless and first-class fighters. They were to be the crack stormtroopers who would break the back of the IRA, end quote. The auxiliary patrol at Kilmichael consisted of 18 members drawn from C Company, which had an overall strength of 160 members based at Macroom Castle. Now, like I said, they had arrived into the area in the summer of 1920 to augment the RIC force in the town and to engage in counterinsurgency operations. Views about the calibre of these personnel included, quote, invariably overbearing and arrogant, end quote, and classic members of sibilant and sinister raiders, and, quote, many appeared to be amenable, but time was to prove most of them were ruthless killers, end quote. John Ainsworth describes the attitude of the IRA towards the Oxys in the following terms. Quote, 
The auxiliaries were considered by their Irish adversaries, who knew them well to be ruthless, more dangerous and far more intelligent than the Tans. End quote. They were also described as anti-IRA irregulars, unlike the army, who responded with a campaign of counter-terror, militarily quite effective, but politically counterproductive. AJS Brady, writing in his memoir, The Briar of Life, lived in McCroom when the Auxiliary Division were deployed there, and he gave an insight into the capability of the force with the following observation. Quote, the section of the force that was known as C Company was well equipped and composed of many hardened warriors of the First World War. It did not seem possible that the flying columns of the IRA could defeat this auxiliary police force. End quote. But as former commissioned officers, there was a certain standard of conduct expected by the auxiliary cadets. And initially they were deemed to be a cut above the former soldiers who made up the black and tans. But it wasn't long before their indiscriminate violent behaviour cast them in a poor light. Sylvian Briolet, apologies about the pronunciation of his voice, I think it's French, a journalist covering the situation in Ireland at the time for the Revue de Paris and Le Correspondent during 1920-1921, testifies that, quote, the cadets of the Auxiliary Division Force, though all officers, seemingly go as far as the black and tans, end quote. Tom Barry described them as ex-British officers who held commission ranks and had had active service on one or more fronts during the Great War. Each carried a rifle, two revolvers strapped to the cadet's tie and two Mills bombs hung from the waist of their sound brown belts. And while Tom Barry's description of the auxiliary cadet isn't that wrong, it's just their arsenal was a hell of a lot bigger than he mentions. Each auxiliary cadet had a selection before going on patrol and could choose any of the following. A Webley revolver, a Smith & Wesson semi-automatic, a Colt semi-automatic pistol, a Lee Enfield rifle, bayonet, Winchester repeating rifle, Winchester shotgun, Lewis machine gun, Vickers heavy machine gun if they had an armoured car, Veray flare pistols and Mills hand grenades. So I think it's clear to see that the auxiliary division had obviously a military mindset in relation to the use of firearms compared to that of a police officer. The historian Gleason informs us that the Auxiliary Division had received no training except in revolver firing and bomb throwing, and that the Auxi personnel in McCroom were allowed as much ammo as they wanted. They would spend their off time hunting rabbits and game in the grounds of McCroom Castle and shooting a lot of bottles down in the river with their revolvers, a sure sign of the boredom when not engaged in active patrolling. So how elite were the auxiliary division. The perception was that from the start the auxiliaries were a super force, an elite unit that the IRA couldn't match in combat in a like-for-like -like basis. But let's have a look at this presumption and see how correct it really is. Professor Elliot Cohn, writing about the special forces, presents three criteria to be satisfied in order for a force to be considered elite. They are 1. The forces usually assigned extremely hazardous missions. 2. The force is normally small in size and membership is restricted to those who meet a high threshold in terms of training and physical fitness. And 3. The force must, by its actions, attain a reputation for bravery and success. So it's pretty clear that the auxiliaries don't tick any of these boxes. Their missions aren't really that hazardous or any more hazardous than what the British Army or the RIC had to do. The force wasn't that small in size and membership wasn't restricted. It actually had a quite a low threshold for entry. All an ex-officer in the British Army had to do once he was demobilized post-World War I was just to respond to a newspaper advertisement. And that was it. There is very little evidence to suggest that there was anything resembling a selection course or even a selection criteria to get into the auxiliary division. And its reputation for bravery and success, well, more people would probably say they had a reputation for heavy handedness and ruthless violence. So the auxiliary division is not really ticking all the boxes to be considered an elite group. But what about the soldiers? What about those 18 auxiliary cadets that were present at Kilmichael? 
let's have a look at their military records and try and make a deeper assessment of their combat capabilities. Now, although these guys had served in the First World War, the branches in which they served were very different, which meant that their experience was very different. As well as that, the amount of time that they spent at a certain rank was quite different, and it differed wildly from member to member. Cadet Frederick Ford was the only auxiliary who was a commissioned officer at the outbreak of the war in 1914. All others had joined after the outbreak of war and between some time up until 1917 and were commissioned as officers in the armed services. As for their wartime service, eight members of the auxiliary patrol did have previous combat experience. That was Barnes, Bradshaw, Craig, Ford, Jones, Pearson, Wainwright and Webster. Another three, Graham, Lucas and Pallister, they had some but lesser experience than the first eight. Cadet Hugo was an interpreter and so he would have spent most of his time in the rear echelon as a railway transport officer or translating captured documents or anything like that. Four members of the patrol, Bailey, Gleave, Guthrie and Taylor, they had served with the Royal Flying Corps and so they would have had very little, if any, land fighting experience. Okay, so what about them being the physical and mental elite? Well, it would appear that Craig, Hugo, Pallister and Taylor didn't suffer any injuries throughout the course of their military service. So there's nothing to suggest that those guys had any loss of fighting ability. As well as that, Guthrie's record indicated a period of four weeks in hospital from September to October in 1918, but nothing to suggest a lack of fighting ability. Lucas, while he appeared to be physically sound, was described by his commanding officer as being very nervous and suffering from a lack of self-assurance. Jones had been shot in the head in 1915 and contracted syphilis in 1917. Bailey was reported in 1917 to have been suffering from a nervous debility as a result of the crash and was hospitalised twice in 1918. Bradshaw had been shot in the chest in 1916 and gassed in 1918. Pearson had also been gassed in October 1918. Webster had been shot in the abdomen in 1916 and returned to Britain in April 17, suffering from trench foot and lumbago. He then sustained another gunshot wound to the shoulder in October 1918. Graham had been diagnosed with shell shock in March 1916 due to the stress of his service in the trenches. He was repatriated in June 1916 with neurasthenia and didn't return to action thereafter. Gleave had been wounded in 1918 and invalided back to the UK in August 1918 where a medical board recommended him as suitable for only sedentary employment. Ford had been invalided back to the UK with a combination of kidney and malarial problems and in August 1920 he was categorised as permanently unfit for duty. Barnes had been wounded in March 1915 and again in 1916. He too was categorised as suitable for sedentary employment only and in 1920 he relinquished his commission on account of ill health. And Wainwright, he had suffered extensive damage to his hearing as a result of heavy bombardment at the Somme in 1917. Two months later, in July 1917, a medical board found him permanently unfit for duty in the front line and he was posted to a convalescent depot. Now, I am not trying to take anything away from these men, nor from their wartime experience. In no shape or form am I trying to belittle it. In fact, Craig Hugo and Ford were awarded the Military Cross, Barnes was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross, and Guthrie had been mentioned in dispatches. The point that I'm trying to make is, and, and I'll say it again, I'm not trying to take away anything from these men and what they've experienced but the point of what I'm trying to make is that they do not fit the popular notion of the elite bunch of battle-hardened physically and mentally fit elite force of the auxiliary division. They all had some experience but one-third of them were not physically fit to meet the required combat standards of that time and in the case of Lucas and Graham they may not have even been mentally fit to perform in a pressurized situation like they were going to meet Kill Michael. The British Army's record of the rebellion in Ireland 
describes the auxiliary division succinctly. Quote, Nominally, they acted under the orders of the county RIC inspector, but in practice, they worked very much on their own or in cooperation with the nearest friendly troops. End quote. So really, due to the declining security situation in Ireland by mid-1920, the British government they needed trained personnel to augment a deteriorating RIC. Now luckily for the British government, they had an abundance of trained men from the demobilised British Army. What also went in their favour was the poor economic climate that post-war Europe was experiencing. And at one pound a day for each day of service, an auxiliary or a black and tan could make a substantial amount of money in a six month period. In the words of one of the auxiliary cadets himself who had served with C Company, he described the auxiliary division as, quote, the corps was advertised as a corps d'elite, which of course made it a lot more attractive. But it may appear that we were little more than hired mercenaries, end quote. If we were to give an assessment to the auxiliary division, we'd have to say that given the improvised nature of the unit, the motivation of its membership being almost solely financial, its relatively short operational existence, you'd have to say that C Company was unlikely to have been a cohesive, properly integrated and effective fighting force. Its efficiency would have been determined by the actions and the initiative of individual members rather than working together as a coordinated collective bunch. General William H. McRaven, a leading U.S. Special Forces commander, makes the point that, quote, brave men without good planning and preparation and leadership are a cannon fodder in the face of defensive war, end quote. So what was C Company's mission? Well, Richard Bennett, in his book The Black and Tans, says this, quote, for three months, the auxiliaries had been raiding, searching, and patrolling the district without being attacked. They had rounded up suspects and had frequently added physical insult to injuries." End quote. But Bill Monroe, the auxiliary member based in McCroom with part of C Company, revealed the following. Quote, we had reverted to ambush hunting in general. It became obvious that false information was being spread purposely by the other side so that in finding so many mares nests we would become careless which in spite of so many warnings by our CO, turned out to be the case and later cost us nearly 20 lives. Monroe continued and said that when they arrived in McCroom that they had little idea of what to look for. In other words, we were raw. He continues to say that the lack of intelligence had them careering around Cork and Kerry on many a wild goose chase. End quote. And you see, that's the problem with counterinsurgency operations. General Frank Kitson, one of the foremost British counterinsurgency experts, succinctly summarised the problem of coin-ops with this statement. Quote, the problem of defeating the enemy consists very largely of finding him. End quote. And he's right, because the IRA, they're not wearing uniforms, they blend back into the general public whenever they're not on active duty, and it's very hard to pin them as being a volunteer member. So it's most likely that C Company's mission on the 28th of November was just a raiding or a searching or an anti-ambush patrol. The patrol was probably considered to be part of an overall strategy to recover whatever authority had been lost to the IRA over the previous number of months in West Cork and to establish or rather re-establish a military dominance in the West Cork area. Either way, with these large patrols it was inevitable that there was going to be some significant confrontation with the IRA. Alright, so that's probably enough on C Company and the Auxiliary Division in general. So let's have a look at the other guys. And of course, I mean the flying column of the 3rd West Cork Brigade, the IRA, led by none other than Tom Barry. Tom Barry was the undisputed commander at Kilmichael, for a very simple reason. None of the other members of the Flying Column had any formal military training. Barry had served as a junior non-com. He was a corporal in the British Army 
during the First World War. Some people say that he had risen to the rank of sergeant, some say he hadn't. I don't think he actually did, but I know that he was offered a commission with the Royal Munster Fusiliers, I believe, but he had turned that down. Now, Barry had spent most of his time in Iraq. Now, obviously soldiers at that time were not trained to any great extent in insurgency or counterinsurgency operations, but they would have received a large amount of small unit tactics. As a corporal, Tom Barry would have been trained to command and control a unit of approximately 8 to 10 riflemen. And if he was a sergeant, he would have been expected to perform the role of a second in command 2IC of a rifle platoon of 30 soldiers, which is just a little less of the number of men in the flying column at Kilmichael. The general membership of the flying column was a broad representation of West Cork's young men. According to Walter Lecure, most IRA members were workmen of this or that, small farmers, farm labourers, shop assistants, employees and other sorts of jobs. All of these who had to continue to pursue their regular civilian work being mobilised at short notice for a few hours or days. In fact, life in a flying column was most difficult for the men who were not technically on the run because those guys had to return home and to work the very next day so as not to cause any suspicion from local police or informants. Matt Flood, a volunteer from the North Cork Flying Column, stated this, quote, Those were tough times because you were out half the night. You might be at anything, training or raiding for arms, but you had to show up bright and early the next morning because if you were missing or late for work, they would suspect something, end quote. Dennis O'Callaghan was an IRA flying column volunteer. Now, O'Callaghan didn't fight at Kilmichael, but he was involved at the larger ambush at Crossbarry the following year. O'Callaghan's description of life in the column is illuminating. He considered himself to be a soldier and reasonably well-trained in the use of arms. However, he does actually qualify that. He's just talking about shotguns that were commandeered from their owners and stored in company dumps. So, so he probably wasn't really well trained in the use of shotguns. Even still, shotguns don't take that much requirement and skill to operate. O'Callaghan also further states that rifles were always in short supply and one of the best ways that they could be supplied was to take them from the military. O'Callaghan recounts an incident in which the Nuses Town Company ambushed a military cyclist patrol moving between Dunmanway and Ballinine by jumping over a ditch and overpowering the soldiers to obtain their rifles. O'Callaghan's interview highlights the sacrifices that these men had to make, such as sleeping in a makeshift hide in the fields around his house, because once he was known to be associated with the Republican movement, he would be quickly arrested. But not only that, some harm or some reprisals could be effected upon his family. For those that couldn't return home, O'Callaghan describes the great lengths the Republican movement went in order to assist the running of farms, planting and harvesting of crops, and generally taking care of their families in their absence. Even at the time of the Kilmichael ambush, flying columns were a relatively recent arrival. A British assessment of the numbers, capabilities, and operational capacity of such flying columns is provided by William Sheehan's book on the 5th Division in Ireland. Quote, the activities of the troops in raids and on patrol had resulted in a number of rebels going on the run, and the more daring of these in each district forming into a flying column of between 20 to 30 men. A flying column was practically a stormtroop unit and was not tied down too much by local brigade or battalion control. Certainly, these organisations collected the best men available for rebel operations. End quote. Adequate training on a regular and organised basis for a flying column was just not possible. The logistical and operational aspects of maintaining a platoon-sized formation on a full-time service would have just drained brigade resources in a flash. It also would have been much easier for the British forces to locate a platoon-sized target and just destroy them with ease. So, for practical reasons, flying columns were mobilised when needed and when not in use, the column was stood down. And this was the column's great strength of being able to melt back into the community when not required. But it did come with a price to pay because when they were stood down, 
the Kalyu members had only a limited opportunity for its members to hone its individual military skills, how to learn how to shoot, march, fight. And even more significantly, members of the Flying Column would have only had a limited exposure to military operations as part of a smaller or indeed a larger unit. The significance of this training deficit is really obvious when you think about the amount of time that it took for a citizen or a recruit to become a private soldier. Back in the First World War, basic infantry training took up to three months and it took at least another month or two to advance in your training just to become a competent infantryman. The IRA at Kilmichael did not have nearly any of this training whatsoever and therefore it can be assumed that their weapons handling and their tactical appreciation was bottom of the barrel stuff. So the flying column's ability to fight in a combined or a coordinated fashion must have been very, very limited. But let's say that the standard IRA volunteer in a flying column can fire his rifle. But is that all he can do? Is he just firing in lying down in a prone position? Is he engaging static or moving targets? Does he know how to operate a accurate rate of fire? Can he stay on target after a period of a physical exertion? What if his weapon fails to fire or develops a stoppage? If there's not enough gas, if he gets a double feed? What about how does he react when he's getting shot at? All of the auxiliaries in their training and their wartime experience would have been shot at at some point. So you have to consider how relatively untrained the IRA were compared to their auxiliary counterparts. Now, I've already mentioned the auxiliaries arsenal. So let's talk about the IRA's selection of weapons that were available to them. Now, we know that most of these guys were armed with a mix of rifles, shotguns, revolvers, and maybe even a few had some grenades. And normally there is a presumption that most IRA members were equipped with a Lee Enfield rifle, which they'd either sourced from a successful raid against an isolated RIC barracks, or they had taken it from British soldiers who they had either killed or disarmed or taken prisoner. Hell, even some British soldiers at the start of the war just sold their rifles trying to make a bit of cash before they left the service. And that's a fair enough presumption because a lot of the photos depict the volunteers with Lee Enfields. But the problem with those photos are that a lot of those photos are from later on in the war. And so in the case of Tom Barry's flying column at Kilmichael in 1920, and while it is less certain what each volunteer at Kilmichael was armed with, it was most likely not a Lee Enfield, and my money would have been put on it being a Ross rifle instead. So, why do I think it's the Ross rifle? So, a few months before the ambush, in June 1920, the Kilbritton Company of the IRA raided a Coast Guard station at Hose Strand and secured, without resistance, 10 Ross rifles. A few days later, the Crown authorities replaced those rifles and then once again, the IRA captured them too. So there are 20 Ross rifles and Hose Strand falls within the West Corp Brigade's area of operations. So no doubt that these rifles made its way into the company dumps and was issued out to the men just before Kilmichael. So you might be thinking, what's unusual about that? The IRA used to attack lots of isolated RIC barracks and confiscate all the weapons there. And you'd be right in thinking that. What's different about the Ho Strand Station is that it is a heavily fortified structure with an inbuilt self-defense tower. It has unrestricted fields of fire and nothing in the way of protection for an advancing enemy. It's literally built solely to defend itself against these types of attacks. Yet, the IRA are able to launch not one, but two successful raids, suffering no losses to themselves and inflicting no losses on the enemy, and were able to capture 22 Ross rifles, as if it was stealing candy from a baby. Now, maybe you're thinking that House Strand Station was undermanned, and that's why they couldn't put up much of a fight. But there were actually seven Coast Guard officers employed at House Strand Station, and they were issued with 10 rifles on the first attack. And on the second attack, they were issued with 12. So that meant that each man had a rifle and in the second attack, there was an extra five. And yet, they still weren't able to hold off the IRA attack. 
And maybe you might be thinking, well, maybe the IRA were just really good at attacking this place. Maybe. But let's put this into context. In June 1921, the Cork McSherry Coast Guard Station was attacked, and they are two very similar buildings. But the chief officer of that station reported that an armed force of civilians, no doubt the IRA, attacked the Coast Guard Station. And this was a serious attack because there was a British Army Lance Corporal that died and there was a private who was also wounded in the initial attack in the town before the IRA moved up to attack the station. But the chief officer was able to defend that station and beat back the IRA attack within 30 minutes with just two rifles and some ammunition. So that clearly demonstrates how well those Coast Guard stations were could be defended. So why is it that at Howe's Strand Station, with the mass of manpower and the mass of weapons, that they still couldn't do it, not once, but twice. So you could be thinking, well, maybe those seven Coast Guard officers had local sympathies or they just didn't want any trouble and on both occasions didn't wish to lose their life and allowed those Ross rifles to be given away and to get away without a scratch. And that could be the case. But in the case of the Ballycrovane Coast Guard Station, which was also in the West Cork Brigade's area of operations, that couldn't have been the case. This station was reinforced by Royal Marines, and yet, even still, the IRA, who didn't even realise the Royal Marines were there, they attacked and they subdued both the Royal Marines and the Coast Guard and confiscated 11 more Ross rifles. Now, you might be thinking, well, yeah, maybe the IRA are savage, and that's really good. But what's really unusual about this is that, A, the Royal Marines had the Lee Enfield as their standard issue rifle since 1919, so they really shouldn't have had any Ross rifles. B, we've talked about how a single officer could defend a Coast Guard station with just two rifles. And a group as highly motivated as Royal Marines with 11 rifles should have easily been able to defend that station. And mostly, C, once the defenders were taken prisoner, they asked the IRA if they could increase the damage to the building so that, quote, the authorities would be impressed by the stiff resistance that they put up, end quote. And the IRA basically just smashed some doors and broke some windows, fired a couple more shots into the exterior walls to make it look like it was a wild firefight. But once again, the Coast Guard, the Royal Marines, the Navy, they're just giving away these Ross rifles. So that's really weird, and why are they doing that? Again, in 1919, in Bantry, another naval vessel basically pulled up and left a cargo of another 10 Ross rifles unguarded. There was no one on that ship, and the Bantry Battalion, the IRA, basically swooped on in, picked up those 10 rifles, and off they went again. So that's 43 Ross rifles that have found themselves by 1920 in the West Cork Brigade's area of operations. And that's why I think the flying column at Kilmichael were more than likely armed with a Ross rifle rather than a Lee Enfield. The reason why I've talked so long about the Ross rifle is because it plays a very important part in the Kilmichael ambush. And I think I'll end part one right about now. So just to recap, I've introduced Kilmichael, given a little intro and a bit of background on it, and the wider picture of the Irish War of Independence. I've given you the traditional and the revisionist views around Kilmichael and the controversies surrounding it. I've talked about the Auxiliary Division, their formation, the definition of what these guys were doing, their role, arms and training. And I've mentioned the military service of the 18 cadets at Kilmichael. I've gone on introduced the IRA's flying column, Tom Barry, a little bit about him, life and training in the flying column, what it was like for each individual volunteer, the weapons, and then of course I talked about the Ross rifle too. In the next episode, we'll talk about how the ambush actually unfolded, and we'll break it down into a phase-by-phase -phase account. And then we'll look at the individual accounts of some of the volunteers that were present at Kilmichael on that day, and try and figure out what actually happened. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at Ireland Battles or just search The Irish at War and you'll find me on Instagram at The Irish at War as well. And until then, 
Thank you and good luck.